0: When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep look, just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. "'Where do you come from?' he asked." from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him.
1: So a strange and wondrous thing happened here in the last couple of weeks. The House of Representatives in Congress agreed on something. It was amazing. Um, resolution passed, um, uh, Ten dissenting votes, which is I think the same thing as unanimity in our modern political climate, um, that was recognizing the Armenian genocide. For those who don't know the history, between 1915 and 1923, some 1.5 million Armenians were killed by Uh, Something of the transition, either the Ottoman Empire or modern-day Turkey, depending on where it was at in its political transition. The 1.5 million Armenians that were killed left something like 500,000 remaining. It was a a deliberate attempt to exterminate a people. Now, why in the world is the House of Representatives recognizing this thing over a century after it's happened? Well, the fact is, uh, many groups wouldn't acknowledge that it existed for a lot of different political reasons. And so that, that moment, which there's an ongoing conversation because now the Senate can take up the resolution, maybe the president will sign it, would, it, would, the, would the United States actually fully recognize this genocide uh, over a century after it began? Um, it's caused a lot of commentary from many Armenian people and very others, uh, various others as well, uh, and Christian leaders in Armenia. Armenia was the first country to officially recognize itself as a Christian nation in the fourth century. It's kind of unique history. But one commentator, president of a Christian university in Beirut, uh, who himself is Armenian, said two different quotes. One, he said, "It certainly heals the recognition by the House. It certainly heals some aspect of our century-long national wound." I, it was a vivid image to me of, of speaking of this this wound that they carry as a people. That really, the healing will come first simply by recognizing that the wound exists. That there's this, this wound out there that needs healing that will come as people recognize and see what's happening. His other quote really stood out to me, though. He said this. He said, The wound will remain open until full repentance for past wrongs is accomplished. That is when new life starts. They need repentance. They need the recognition of these past wrongs. They need a sorrow for sin in order for new life to begin. The past hovers over a people needing resolution. I think that is relevant to our study here today as we move through Genesis 42 through 44. We're going to cover three chapters here in one sweep. So if you don't have your Bibles open yet, I encourage you to get them open. We're going to take you on this journey. But the, the, the past hovers the wounds of the past hover over these chapters. You're going to see the past just lingering as a kind of open wound and a sorrow that hovers over a people here in these chapters. But in, in the course of it, Joseph emerges as, a, as an unlikely kind of savior. I think a lot of people that read on these chapters come in how they read Joseph. A lot of times I've heard Joseph almost presented as a kind of schizophrenic character where he's just at one point wanting to do right by his brothers. At some point, he's just being vindictive or mean or honoring. And there's like this inner conflict that's not being resolved until chapter 45. I don't think that's it at all. I think Joseph here is emerging as a kind of savior. Um, But in doing so, he's going to show us what salvation really looks like. And it's more than what maybe they think they need. But if you start Genesis 42, you start where John just read for us, it opens with Jacob. And the sorrow of Jacob really hovers deeply over this story. The sorrow of Jacob is there, but in the immediate opening, it's really about the crisis. This crisis that they are going through, which is a crisis of starvation. The the famine that we spoke of last week, Joseph's uh, the the dream of Pharaoh that Joseph interpreted for him. The seven years of abundance were followed by seven years of want, and in the seven years of abundance, Joseph had been elevated to the number two in the kingdom and had been tasked with uh, with storing up uh, uh, supplies to prepare them for the seven years of famine. And when the seven years of famine came, suddenly they're not just feeding Egyptians; they're feeding the world. God has used, uh, Joseph to, to bring salvation to the world. He is bringing life. And now, as we've seen that in chapter 41, here in 42, we now drill back and we kind of rejoin Jacob and the, and the, and the eleven brothers. And there they are, needing the same thing that everyone else is. And it's a life or death situation, verse two. Uh, go down and buy grain for us there in Egypt, that we may live and not die. Their lives are at stake here. And if you want to see this as a kind of salvation story, what is the salvation they think they need? They think they need grain. Uh, They think they just need a a meal to eat to sustain them through this famine. Uh, And and this—that's what he's—that's what he's after. That's what they're going for. But as he sends them on their way, Jacob sends the brothers, leaves Benjamin behind. And you hear in that him bringing the leaving him behind. You hear something of the sorrow that he's going through. Verse four, he feared that harm might happen to Benjamin. He fears the same thing that could happen to Benjamin that happened to Joseph. Joseph and the loss for Jacob still hovers over this family. It's like this dark cloud that needs resolution. And I think it's an ominous thing verse 5 famine was in the land of Canaan. But then they 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 come before Joseph there and there's opening verses and it, they they bow before him and in that moment re- realize that's the dream being fulfilled at least partially. He's got his brothers, at least ten of them, standing, are bowing before him. They don't know who he is, but they're bowing before him and seeing him as leader. Here he is, the number two in, in charge of the most powerful country in the world. He is their source of life. That dream is coming fulfilled. And if you want a real simple story, if this is really just about sustaining him through a famine... This is the moment where he says, hey guys, look who I really am. Here I am. Everything's great. Here's the bread. Why don't you bring Jacob and Benjamin down? We'll all be a happy family. He could feed them. They get their bread. They they survive for another day. Everything's great. But Joseph wants something more. And I think God is actually leading Joseph here and guiding them to something much deeper. And actually what happens here in these three chapters is a series of tests. That will go on. He'll explicitly say that. I'll point that out here in a few verses. But he's explicitly going to be testing them. But, but as he does so, why, why, why does he test them? And, and as you see in each of these tests, each chapter, there's a sense where he is taking them through that experience, inviting them back into that open wound of the past and giving them opportunity to see some change or transformation happen. Joseph had been mistreated by his brothers. They had uh, rejected both father and family. And the first test here is a test of repentance. Will they experience genuine sorrow for their sin when it is placed before them? Well, what does he do? He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Verse 9, it's, I think, a, a telling moment. He says Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And as soon as he remembers that, in the sense that the dream is being fulfilled in his presence. What does he say to them? You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. That's kind of an ominous thing to say, right? Uh, your servants have never been spies. And he says, verse 12, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. We, your servants, they say, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man of the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. You can hear the dagger twisting as Joseph hears those words from his brothers. But then he says to them, "It is As I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. He's testing them. But it's not the way they think. He's testing them. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And while you remain confined, he'll bring Benjamin. In verse 17, what does he do? Here's the real, I think, heart of the test. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And there's a sense in that imprisonment that he is inviting them to walk Joseph's road. And I think that's the first aspect. You see various aspects of this throughout these tests. This is a moment for them to reflect on the road that they have and where they 're at, and this exposure the protection the way they abandoned Joseph so long ago, so they 're there for three days. he pulls them out of prison, and he says okay i 'm not going I'm, to I'm, I fear God he says in verse eighteen so i 'll let one of you remain in prison, and the rest of you can go home and come back bring bring the brother, and we'll be fine um, and then there's this remarkable moment, verse 21. And they look at, um, they're speaking to each other in Hebrew. They don't know that Joseph wouldn't recognize or understand what they're saying. And what do they say in response to these three days in prison and this threat that now hovers As one of the brothers has to be left behind. They have to leave a brother in prison doing the same kind of thing, have this same exposure of danger to one of the brothers in the way that they had caused the danger to Joseph so long ago. What do they say? In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood him, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And there's, it's really remarkable in terms of Old Testament narrative and really the way Scripture is written on the entirety. There's not a lot of pathos. There's not a lot of times that you see kind of the inner life of a person exposed. It happens several times here in this part of Joseph's story that you see this, um, the deep love that he has for them. As he hears them confess repentance and sorrow over this, over their sin, he weeps but yet maintains this illusion of authority because the testing is not done. Um, so, so he is testing them as a way of drawing them into repentance. He's inviting them into his experience. And to do so, it's in, it really their repentance, that sorrow is in inviting them and, and, and would evolve a new kind of relationship with their family. They're going to treat Simeon, who's going to be left behind as they go, differently than they treated Joseph. If they're really sorry, if they're repentant, it's not that they say, I'm sorry, and they just move on with life. They forgive and forget. No, they experience sorrow, and it leads them to a different way of living. Repentance is about changed lives. And you begin to see that here in this first test. Notice, too, again, that Joseph is not being vindictive in all this, that he blesses them at every corner. He sends them on the way, and the rest of the chapter describes this blessing as he sends them home with their packs full of grain and actually gives them their money back. So they get home and are horrified. And it actually says, verse 28, you hear the guilt just hovering over this, these brothers. What is this that God has done to us? We've got this money. He's going to think we stole all this stuff. They're terrified. And they go back to Jacob And Jacob just shuts them down. I'm not going to lose another. Um, They're horrified. He's horrified at the idea that he's now they've given up one brother, and they won Benjamin, so now he's going to have to give up a third son. Jacob's loss just hovers over this, and that's not going to be resolved until chapter 45. We're going to deal with Jacob more next week. But in a sense, as Jacob ends the chapter, he kind of shuts down the idea that they're going to take Benjamin and expose him. So that's the first test. Simeon's in prison back in Egypt. The rest of them are on the road here. And now we've got another test that's coming. Chapter 43 begins, and we've got yet another test because the famine's still going on. So they're getting more and more desperate. The grain's running out. They need the food. And the brothers are saying, look, it's not going to happen unless we show up with Benjamin. That's what the deal was. And so then Jacob is resistant. And then all of a sudden, there's this new moment where Judah emerges. What's getting ready to happen, I'll just preview it here, is that there's going to be a test of jealousy. Joseph is going to challenge their struggle with jealousy within their ranks, their relationship with their brother, specifically their brother Benjamin. But Judah, early on in this chapter, emerges as this new kind of protector. Now remember, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we read this horrible story about Judah just not too long ago. Judah was in a pretty dark place. Judah had abandoned his family. He turned his back. He turned his back on his loyalty. He has all sorts of issues in his life. But there was a moment in that story with his daughter-in-law Tamar where there was a sense of turning in Judah's life. And we saw that that would anticipate what's happening right now, that Judah steps into the gap. And what does he say? Verse 8, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety." From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now that's some ownership. That's a family identity. Judah is taking on this protection of his younger brother Benjamin. He's going to own this sense of responsibility for him, even though Benjamin, everything that we've seen so far, has him in a sense replacing Joseph as the favored son of Jacob. Jacob wouldn't let Benjamin go. He keeps him back, holds him back. There's that sense of favoritism which had driven them crazy when Joseph was around. But now they're being tested again and Judah is stepping into the gap and offering himself as a kind of protection. And so Jacob relents and lets him go. There's a sense of resignation for him. Verse 14, uh, May God Almighty grant you mercy before men and may he send back your other brother and, uh, and Benjamin. And as for me... If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Which is a sense that Jacob is sending him off thinking, I'm not sure this is really going to turn out well. Jacob is still hopeless. He doesn't have any sense. And so Judah, though, is stepping into this gap and protecting him. So they show back up in Egypt. There's an interaction there, and they're a little bit nervous about admitting they've got this money, so they bring back this double portion to say, hey, you, you didn't take your money with you. Here it is. Here's some more. But Joseph takes that away source of the test. Verse 23, he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. This determination to bless. He brings Simeon out there in verse 23. Seems like all is right with the world. And then again, then they're introduced, he sees Benjamin for the first time. Verse 29, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. Of whom, and it said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And again, these are just unheard of in these Old Testament stories, that you would have that sense, that drawn-out sense of Joseph's anguish here. But he is delighting at seeing his brother uh, weeping over the sense of reunion. And so what does he do, though? He presents himself again as the man in charge, the Egyptian ruler. He brings them out and invites them into his home and gives them a banquet. And they ser- he serves them and lines them up, so he has them sit. Uh, verse 33, They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. He's kind of toying with them a little bit there. He just has them sit at the table in their birth order. Uh, Just happens to know exactly the order that they're born. But then verse 34, as he lines them up from firstborn to youngest, verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. There's their test. Benjamin gets this extraordinary blessing. They're all being blessed. They're all receiving life in abundance. He's feeding them. He's giving them this, this hope and this new life. And they're, they're at his table. They're eating his food. They're at the feast. But Benjamin gets a little more. Gets a lot more, actually. And that sense of favoritism, that sense of jealousy, that had once consumed them with Joseph. Because when Joseph had dreamed of them bowing down before him, it was a dream that they, too, were stars bowing down before the sun and the moon. That they were actually in charge. They had a sense of authority. But Joseph would be the preeminent one. And it's almost as if you say you can have any place... That they're, they're, they, they, could, they could delight in being at the table or they could resent the fact that they're not at the head of the table. Now before, with Joseph, they resented the fact that they were not at the head of the table. Here, the last sentence of chapter 43 shows this change that's happened. And it says simply, and they drank and were merry with him. The brothers are in a place here where they are freed to celebrate at the table alongside with the fa- alongside the favorite son they pass the test um, they can Think of the story of the, uh, the prodigal son. The prodigal son uh, takes his, uh, Jesus tells the story of him taking his father's inheritance and going out to the wild country and sowing his wild oats and you know, losing it all and being in this place of desperation and then comes back and presents himself to the father to say, I'll just make me a slave. I'd rather be a slave in your house than a free man on my own. This would be better. And he does so. He puts him in that place. He says, no, no, you're not going to be the slave of my house. You're actually going to get this, my cloak. You're going to be sitting at the head of the table. You're the honored son who's returned. And then the real heart of the story in the prodigal son is the older brother who is resentful and jealous. How dare you treat this wayward child in such a place of honor when I'm the one who's been faithful and loyal to you? The real question that the prodigal son poses for him. And actually, I think we talked last year, and as we studied Jonah, you see the exact same thing happen in Jonah's life. The real question for Jonah and the question for the older brother is can you delight in the salvation of other people? And in this case, can you delight in the salvation of your brother? Can you delight in the blessings of your brother? That was a thing that consumed them destroyed them with Joseph. And now here with Benjamin, they're showing signs of a change. Joseph has presented them with this opportunity to show they are rising above the sin of jealousy. and They're passing the test. Changes are afoot. And all of a sudden, these these brothers who were so easily divided when they turned against Joseph are now acting as one. They're acting as a family. And then comes the third test. Chapter 44, the test of loyalty. They had abandoned Joseph when they should have protected them. Will they abandon Benjamin and their father in their times of trial? Because when he sends them home, verse 44, the very opening verses, he tells his men, he says, Fill the men's sacks with food and as much as they can carry. Put each man's man's money in the mouth of a sack. So he gives them all that money back. He's not taking their money. He's going to bless them, going to feed them. Verse 2, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. Give it to Benjamin. And with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So they send them off. And then they chase them down and say, Hey, you've stolen this cup. They say, No, we haven't. Uh, There's no way. And he brings them back and they search the sacks. And then verse 13, they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Because they'd found this cup in Benjamin's sack. So here... There's a sense where he is challenging them. This is their moment. Benjamin is the one that's exposed. The favored son is the one that's exposed, just as Joseph had been exposed by them so many years ago. And so what do they do? Verse 14, they come, and Judah and his brothers, and notice Judah is the one taking the lead here. Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house, and they fall before him. And Judas speaks, verse sixteen. It's one of the I think is I think it is the longest speech in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm sorry, in Genesis. And Judas speaks, verse sixteen. He says, "What shall we say to my lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants." And notice every everything he's saying in those opening sentences is not about Benjamin; it's about us. There is this sense of solidarity. They are identifying themselves with Benjamin. And the first salvo here, they're wanting to be held responsible alongside Benjamin. They are walking alongside him to say, let his punishment be ours. This is our responsibility. We can't explain it. I don't think we did it, but it's there. And if you're going to find him guilty, find all of us guilty. Judah is stepping up, and the brothers are stepping up and owning their sense of responsibility to their brother. To the brother, Verse 18, he says, Judah again speaks, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let your, not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. What's he doing there? He's pleading for Benjamin's life because of Benjamin's unique relationship with Jacob. He is honoring the sense of favoritism, if you will, the sense of like this favored status that Benjamin has. It says, do this. Save him. If you don't save him on our behalf, if you're not going to save him on Benjamin's behalf, save him on behalf of our father. He's lost too much already. Be there for him. And so he pleads for him. He's pleading for Benjamin. And in a sense, he is pleading for Jacob And he recounts the entire story of stepping in there on his behalf and and being willing to defend for them. He's pleading for him. And so the response, verse 32, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. His final plea is to simply offer himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Let me stand in his place and let him return. The resolution of that, chapter 45, we're going to let that hold till next week. But right here in that moment, notice what's happened that Judah is leading them as brothers. They are faithful to one another and they're faithful to their father. These tests have shown them becoming the nation that they're called to be. The crisis that opened up in the story of Joseph was that as this promise that God had made to Abraham was passed on to Isaac, passed on to Jacob, is now passed on to his sons, was being rejected, was being taken for granted, was being ignored. This generation had to own it. Every generation has to own the promises of God before them. And that generation was rejecting it, and now Joseph is the means by which They are being restored to what they are called to be. They are being rebuilt as a people. It is a picture of a nation rebuilt and a nation delivered. Well, what do you do with all that? That's a lot of stuff I try to pack in three chapters here. You see all these tests. What do we do? Well, I think a couple things I want you to see. I want you to see that salvation is about more than an escape. That's true in Genesis. It ultimately becomes true in Christ. The Christian faith, in the Christian faith, salvation is more than just about an escape. It's not just about forgiving and forgetting, but forgiving and redeeming. The past hovers over this story for all of them, and the past can hover the story for over the story for all of us. We can all carry our stuff from our past. And, and it, you can think salvation and say, well, I just don't have to worry about that past anymore. I was thinking as I was reading this week these three chapters, there's an old movie quote, you may be through with the past, but the past may not be through with you. The past keeps coming back for them until it's dealt with. Uh, and that's part of the work of salvation. Is not simply that God just says, here, I'm going to send my son for you so that we can just forgive and just ignore all that stuff and it just goes away. He's doing something much deeper. He's doing something much deeper in the lives of Israel here in these chapters. He's doing much, something much deeper in our lives. Salvation is about more than an escape. In Christ, too, salvation runs through our deepest struggles, not away from them. Salvation is about finding a way forward through redemption, not simply forgetting. It's that quote, you know, this idea of we have these open wounds from our past. A century later, our people are still suffering because of these unacknowledged wounds. That wound has been covered over and is simply festering. It's got to be exposed to the light. Expose it. Deal with it. God's salvation runs through our deepest struggles, not away from them. Their salvation was changing them in real and tangible ways. God saving Israel wasn't just about giving them a few sacks of grain. He was about changing their hearts to make them into the kind of people that can love and serve one another and therefore to be a light to the nations, which is what God's people are meant to be. In Christ, salvation runs through our deepest struggles, not away from them. And then third, in Christ, God saves us as a people, not just as persons. Now that's kind of an odd thing maybe to think about, because we live in a deeply individualistic culture. It's really one of the things that I think is destroying our culture, is the fierce individualism of our culture. So when we think of salvation, we often think of it on individualist terms. This is a transaction that happens between me and Jesus. And you know the rest of you are kind of existing on the side of this. But that's not what he does. God doesn't save a whole bunch of peop- uh, persons. He saves a people. He creates a nation. He creates a people and calls them to live uh, among one another, to love and to care for one another, to bear each other's burdens, to look out for one another. I bear a responsibility for you. You bear a responsibility for me because my salvation is not something that exists in private or individual terms. Now, it's true that every one of us has to, to lay claim to this ourselves, that, that we, we will stand before the throne and give it accounting for our claim of faith. We've got to own that individually. But but that salvation that comes is not to a group of persons, but to a group of people. He is building a people. He is building a nation. It's happening right here in these chapters. It's what's happening in Israel. He's building it. And that's what he's doing in his church, that God is building a people, a nation, saved by his grace, who are dealing with the open wounds of our past seeing redemption shine its light on the real wounds in our hearts and our lives and the brokenness of sin that runs from generation to generation, and seeing real and vital change happen in our hearts and in our lives. That guy that was talking about the Armenian genocide, he says the wound will remain open until full repentance for past wrongs is accomplished. That's when new life starts. In Christ, we have a new life that is a salvation that is beyond simply forgetting past wrongs. We have a salvation that in Christ is about opening the wounds and healing the wounds. That new life comes only through Christ. Let that new life begin in you. Let's pray. God, I pray for the way that each of us, uh, I pray that you'll help each of us see the wounds of our past, and the way that we need to see the reality of redemption. And I pray, just as you did with Joseph, that you can refine our hearts and our lives to give us a longing to serve you, to see our whole lives transformed by your grace. Thank you for the power of the gospel given to us in Christ alone. In Christ's name, amen.